Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 8, verse 20 through 9, verse 17. Is the Bible in favor of capital punishment? Well, there in Genesis chapter 9, uh, we read there, beginning in verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I think what's interesting as we look at these uh, elements of Genesis 9, where the Noahic covenant is beginning to be expounded here in a couple of verses, but even in in the preceding verses at the beginning of chapter 9, there's some significant creation overtones, but a resetting of creation in the context of a post-fall world that recognizes that fallen humanity will result in increasing violence on the earth. God dealt with the increasing violence in the flood, but now post-flood, he's promising or about to promise that he will not destroy the earth again with a flood. So what is the remedy for ensuring that violence will not just go unrestrained? And this is the institution here of, of capital punishment that recognizes the value of the worth and dignity that God places on life, commensurate with the image that he has placed on life. But As we look at what happens here in the opening verses of chapter 9, there's a lot of kind of covenant themes in the Old Testament that are predicated on Israel's particular relationship with God. Uh, We see that particularly in the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, things that uh, go um, within their particular time frame in Israel's history and then are later superseded by later covenants or by the New Covenant. But we look at the Abraham or the Noahic covenant and the immediate context around the Noahic covenant, we see themes that are more enduring. They're more creation ordinance themes. So God says that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So that's an everlasting covenant. It's not conditioned upon a particular historical moment. Uh, Similarly, in the events immediately preceding that articulation of that covenant, we have the be fruitful and multiply that from from animals, God will require judgment if they take the life of a man, and, and also from man, God will require a penalty. So as we look at all of that, I think we can say this is not contextualized in Israel's history particularly. Israel's not even a nation. So this is for humanity at large. And so we can't simply pass over God's institution of capital punishment and say that was an Old Testament doctrine that no longer applies to humanity today. With that being said, I think that as we look here at this text, we can say that this is an ongoing ordinance that recognizes a basic principle of justice, that the issue of human life is so significant that in order to protect it, capital punishment is a necessary means of retributing justice for acts of violence against image bearers. So is that compatible with a pro-life position? It is compatible with a pro-life position. If, if we look at the justification that God gives for why he's instituting uh, the capital punishment in the first place, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God is basing the institution of capital punishment around his own value of the worth and dignity of human life as being created in his own image by himself. So in the same breath, God 
elevates the dignity of life and also institutes capital punishment. So there correspondingly can be no conflict between these two things. We also see in the New Testament that Paul brings over this idea of capital punishment as a means of demonstrating what effective governance should look like. So in Romans chapter 3 or 13, uh, Paul instructs believers to be subject to the governing authorities. And then he mentions that the governing authorities have been placed there by God as God's instrument of justice. And he says it's for this reason that the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain. And the sword is obviously there a a weapon of death. It's a, a, a measure of execution, but also there is a symbol of justice that God in his sovereignty and his love for us punishes those and, and ordains that those who disregard life should be punished by the taking of their life so that therefore they are unable to continue to disregard life by taking more innocent life. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from Noah's offering. Does that mean that God has a sense of smell? You know, we've encountered some verses like this so far in our journey through the book of Genesis. This would be an example of an anthropomorphism. So anthropos, word for man, morphism, meaning form. So an anthropomorphism is a kind of metaphorical way of using language to attribute human characteristics uh, to someone who doesn't have those same human form characteristics. So um, in the Bible would use uh, language like God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden or the strong arm of the Lord defeated the enemies of Israel's. But it, 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 within that, it's not for us to think of God as having literal feet that he's walking through the garden or that he has a literal arm that he is using to wipe away Israel's enemies. Um, God does not have a body like a man. God is spirit. And so that being the case, when we come to texts like this, we need to recognize that this is metaphorical language that puts in in human terms something that is attributing something about God that we could not understand without him accommodating himself to our language. So when the Bible says that God smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, what's being indicated there is not that God has a literal sense of smell, but rather that God that Noah's acts pleased God and that he accepted Noah's sacrifice as a means of true worship. In regard to the rainbow, does God need visible reminders? You know, again, I think we need to recall that God is accommodating himself to our language. So when we think of what it means for us to remember, as we've spoken of in in previous uh, sections of the book of Genesis, our remembrance is the calling to mind of events or things that have passed out of our memory. For God, that isn't the case. He's omniscient. He, He knows all things at all times, and things don't pass in and out of God's minds in sequential time-space categories the way that they do for us as human beings. In other words, we think of things sequentially as they come and then go, uh, bound in time. That's not how God thinks. That's not how God's mind works. He's, He's not bound in space and time. So his memory is a function of his faithfulness. When it says that God remembers, it's a statement that he is maintaining his ongoing covenant promises. He is being faithful to what he said. So when God says that when he sees the rainbow in the sky, he will remember, it is to say that ongoing symbol of the rainbow in the sky 
testifies God's ongoing commitment to fulfill his own word, to be faithful to what he promised, in this case, not to destroy the earth again via a flood. What should Christians do with the rainbow decor in a society that uses rainbows as a symbol to affirm immoral behavior? Yeah, that's such a hard issue to wrestle with because on the one hand, I, I certainly understand the impulse to want to reclaim a, a beautiful symbol that God gave to humanity as a evidence of his patient mercy to us and a promise uh, that he gave to preserve life until the final judgment. And, and so to acquiesce in giving up a symbol that, that testifies of God's grace and mercy and patience uh, is not something that we as Christians should do. We should fight for the beauty of what the rainbow is intended to signify. At the same time, Christians also need to be aware of what the cultural connotations and common usages of uh, the rainbow currently sin- signify. In some respects, it's kind of cultural virtual virtue signaling uh, to be wearing rainbow, you know, paraphernalia or or uh, memorabilia, and it connotates or it communicates an affirmation of a cultural agenda of tolerance and of affirmation of what the Bible would speak of as divergent, morally corrupt behavior. It it symbolizes affirmation of all of those things. So I think we have to be very careful in the way in which we utilize uh, things like the rainbow in cultural contexts where it's likely to be misunderstood. So when we are able to clearly define the terms around which we are using that, that symbol, I think it is valuable for us to maintain as good what God gave to humanity as a symbol of his patience and his mercy. But when it's likely to cause greater confusion, I think Christians need to decide in a position that is going to represent the moral clarity with which we should speak on these culturally confused issues. In chapter 8, verse 3, God gives animals to humans for food. So does that mean people were all vegetarians prior to the flood? Yeah, I think it's very unlikely uh, that most of humanity were vegetarians prior to the flood. What happens, though, in the post-flood world is that God explicitly gives now uh, animals to humanity as open game. Whereas in the opening chapters of Genesis, God explicitly identifies the plant life as being given to humans for food. Now God actually blesses or stands behind and affirms that humanity can and should partake of of animal life for their food. And of course, the main thing that's happened between those two events is the fall. And so the reason that God doesn't give animals to humanity for food in the original creation mandate is because it would require death. Death is a consequence of the fall, and therefore God cannot give to humankind the blessing of partaking of of animal life uh, until after the flood happens, and so or after the fall happens. And so here is God reestablishes these creation ordinances to Noah as the kind of new Adam. Um, there is a change now to the dominion mandate and included in that is that there's a broader menu on the table, so to speak, that is divinely given. You mentioned in your sermon that the Noahic covenant is the first one made in the Bible. In Hosea 6 verse 7, it likens Israel's covenant failures to those of Adam. So is there a covenant made between God and man at creation? This is a really good question and one I'm glad that was asked to provide some additional clarity on. 
I said on Sunday that the Noahic Covenant is the first covenant of the Bible. To be more precise, I should say that the Noahic Covenant is the first covenant uh, in the Bible that uses the exact language of a covenant. So it's the most, it's the first explicit rendering of a covenant in the Old Testament and in all of the Bible, of course. Uh, the word there, berit, for a covenant is the first is first used there in the entrance of the Noahic covenant. It's foreshadowed before the flood, but that's when God says, I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah. So in the context of Noah is the first time that that word, uh, berit, gets used. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the Noahic covenant is actually the first redemptive covenant in all of the Bible. Uh, And we see some allusions to a covenant language in the opening chapters of Genesis, some uh, particularly between God and Adam, the idea that there is a blessing to be found in the obedient life. There's going to be life and flourishing in the garden. Even I think the Placing of the tree of life in the garden is itself a means of blessing to Adam and to humanity, which is one of the tenets of a covenant, that there's a blessing. And then there's also prohibitions in a covenant. In this case, don't eat of the forbidden tree and the forbidden fruit. And then accordingly with those covenant blessings and stipulations, there's also covenant curses, which God says on the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. So there's a penalty for breaking of the covenant. And then in Hosea 6, verse 7, um, we read, But like Adam, they, Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. The broader context there isn't so much relevant to the question. What's important is that God is likening Israel's failure to keep covenant like Adam's failure to keep covenant. And so there seems to be an implication at the very least all the way in Hosea that God has some kind of covenant instituted with Adam there in the garden. Theologically, we call this the covenant of works, that Adam has an obligation of obedience that's placed upon him. And if he keeps this obedience to God, the blessings to humanity will follow. We, of course, know Adam violates the covenant. The covenant of works there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is offset by the covenant of grace, where the second Adam comes, he fulfills for us the work of perfect obedience that the first Adam did not keep, and therefore he extends by his own righteousness, Christ as the second Adam, a covenant of grace, because we were unable to do the work in Adam uh, that he did for us in his cross. A listener asked a question about a post from Ben Shapiro about the seven laws of Noah, which are no idolatry, no blasphemy, no adultery, no murder, do not steal, do not eat the flesh of a living animal, and establish courts of law. Does that apply to us in any form? You know, that thought process of these additional uh, stipulations as part of the Noahic covenant or the seven laws of Noah They don't appear in any of the biblical texts that we have. So in the canon of scripture, we don't have any of these seven commandments supposedly given to Noah. These appear in the extra biblical Jewish religious texts, particularly the Talmud. Um, And these are religious texts that codify some additional Jewish law and religious commentary on the Torah. So these are not biblical texts. In other words, as Christians, we do not believe that these texts are from God. They're not inspired They are not written by the Holy Spirit. So consequently, they do not have authority uh, over our lives. And in in my belief, uh, the seven laws, so-called laws of Noah, given to Noah, commandments given to Noah, are 
misplaced. Uh, they are not true uh, reflections of what God commanded to Noah there in the covenant that's there. Uh, it supposes or it enters into the covenant, this idea of a bilateral covenant, meaning that Noah would have had some obligations to keep this covenant. But that's not what we see happening in the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is a unilateral covenant, meaning that it's not conditioned on Noah's obedience. Uh, God is going to keep this everlasting covenant to humanity, to the world, to all of the created life, regardless of whether or not man continues in his sinful behavior. So introducing these commands would cloud the unilateral nature of the covenant when God himself says man's heart is sinful from his youth. God is realistic about the fact that if he conditions his patient mercy upon the sinlessness of humanity, the covenant will immediately be broken. So it's not in any of the canonized scriptures. It's from texts that the Jews added where they added a whole compendium of additional law in their own commentary, and they continued to believe that you must keep these commandments in order to be a worshiper of the one true God, and we would reject that as, as heretical teaching that is outside of the Christian faith. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.